Amen. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christmas is my favorite season of the year. I love Christmas so much. I love the beauty of the season. I love all the lights and the decoration. I love the weather of the season. Usually a little bit colder, a little chilly. I love bundling up and drinking hot chocolate. I love the movies. I love the songs. I love the traditions. But more than anything, I love the wondrous mystery of Christmas. Come behold the wondrous mystery. The wondrous mystery of Christmas is that Jesus, being 100% God, as we heard in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus Christ, was God. He's fully God. And yet he steps into time and space, becoming 100% human. John 1.14 that Kelly read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We call this in theology the incarnation. The incarnation that Jesus became incarnate. God, very God, stepping into time and space to become fully human. And this morning, what I want to do is just enjoy a small meditation on the incarnation together to glory in the wondrous mystery of the miracle of Christmas. How is it possible that Jesus is both God and man at the exact same time? We tend to struggle with mystery like this, even though it's all over the Bible. And by mystery, I don't mean something that we can't fully know. We know exactly that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. There's no question about that in the Bible. We just don't know how that all works. There's lots of places in the Bible that we have these tensions, these mysteries. Think of the Bible itself. If I were to ask you, is the Bible a human book or a divine book? What's the answer? Yes, is the answer, right? Is it a human book or a divine book? There are so many people that look at that tension because the Bible is very clear that it was written by God, but the Bible is also very clear that it was written by humans. And so we have both at the exact same time, and there's a tension there. And many people often, when they come to tensions like that in the Bible, they go to one side or the other. For instance, in the case of the Bible, who wrote the Bible? There was a theory that was... um, people came up with it uh, several decades ago. They said it's called the dictation theory, that, that God just robotically used human authors, that he just kind of took over their body, took over their mind, took over their will, and forced them to write exactly what he wanted them to write. So it's really God writing, not men, because men were kind of pulled out of the picture because God robotically used them. That's clearly not the case when you read the Bible. When you read the Bible, you see there are personalities that come out with the authors, different personalities. I love reading the Apostle Paul. You read the book of Romans, and I just, I picture Paul writing Romans, sitting in some room in Corinth, looking west, longing to go west, longing to be with the Romans, and writing this carefully drawn out argument, this beautiful, I mean, from verse one, he has an argument in mind that goes all the way through a linear progression through the book of Romans. It is neat, it is tidy, it is perfect. And then you have the book of Galatians. He wrote Galatians after his first missionary journey. He comes home and he gets word that the Galatian church that he loves so much is already starting to go back to the Judaizers and to deny the gospel of grace alone. They're adding works to salvation. And you see Paul get frustrated by that in the book. His personality comes out. One of my favorite parts of Galatians is when he says, one thing I ask of you. And then he asks four questions. You see his personality come out. So the dictation theory is wrong. People that look at the mystery of the tension, the Bible's written by God, written by man, they go to one side and they lose the mystery. People go to the other side though and they say, well, since it's written by humans, maybe it's only written by humans and maybe it has errors in it. Well, that's clearly wrong because we know it has no errors because number one, it says so, and number two, it's written by God. So you have to put both of those together. Same thing happens with prayer. I think functionally prayer is one of the biggest mysteries In the Bible, does God ever change his mind? No, the Bible's clear about that. Does prayer change things? Yes, absolutely, the Bible's clear about that. How does that work? I don't know. 
but I know that it works. I don't know how it works, but I know that it works because both of those are clear. And again, if you go to one side or the other, you get error. An error that began a few decades ago is an error called open theism. Open theism just says that um, God doesn't know the future. God doesn't know the future. The future is a mystery to him. He's trying to figure it out as he goes along. Clearly wrong. That's a false doctrine. Clearly wrong in the scriptures. But that false doctrine came out of a contemplation of prayer. People thought, well, if prayer changes God's mind about things and changes things, then maybe God doesn't actually know. This is what happens if you go to one side or the other with mysteries in the Bible. It's very, very dangerous. So when we come to Jesus, we have 100% God, 100% man at the exact same time. Clearly, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. This is not unclear in the Bible. Mark chapter 2, as we've been studying, Jesus says, I can forgive sins. And the Pharisees say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, yes, and so that you may know that I have power to forgive sins, I'm going to tell this man, pick up your bed and walk. And he gets out, the paralytic who's dropped through the roof, he walks out. So that you may know I have the power to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus must be God. John chapter 8, verse 53, he claims to be God. Before Abraham was, I am. And people pick up stones to stone him because he's blaspheming. John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And they pick up stones to stone him again because they say explicitly, you are making yourself out to be God. There is no question in the text that Jesus is God. In the epistles, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Philippians chapter 2, he existed in the form of God. He is equal with God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, he made all things. John 1, there isn't anything that was created that he didn't create. He made it all. The Bible teaches that Jesus existed in heaven before coming to earth. He was sent to earth. No human can say that about themselves. No human was pre-existent in heaven and was sent to earth. No, we were created here on earth. No one was sent to earth but Jesus alone because he's God. He receives worship from Thomas. He possesses all the attributes of deity. He is the exact representation of God. Hebrews chapter 1, he upholds all things by the word of his power. The name Yahweh is attributed to Jesus, Lord, in all capital letters. That name is attributed to Jesus in Romans, Titus, Hebrews, and 2 Peter. Jesus never says, thus saith the Lord. He says, I tell you, because he is the authority. He sees Nathanael under the tree. He is transfigured before his disciples. He owns the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath. He is God. He acts as God. He possesses divine attributes. Clearly, Jesus is God. At the exact same time, clearly the Bible teaches that Jesus is human, really human, truly human, actually human. The exact same gospels that teach his deity that I just shared also attest to his humanity. He's tired. He fell asleep in Mark chapter four in the, in the boat. He's tired. He's thirsty. He's tempted. He's hungry. He's born. He grows up. He dies. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. He grew in wisdom. He grew in knowledge. He learned. Do you realize that there are things that Jesus didn't know when he was on the earth? He's clearly in the Bible, clearly in the gospel, limited in his knowledge. He doesn't know the hour of his second coming. He asks the father of the demon-possessed boy how long the boy had been possessed. He wants to get alone with his disciples, but he keeps getting frustrated in his plans. His plans never work the way that he wants them to, getting alone with his disciples, because he keeps running into people. He goes into a house, there's somebody there. He goes to another place to try and get away. There's people that are clamoring for his attention. One of my favorite passages uh, that shows this tension so clearly is John 11. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that. He tells his disciples, we're going to stay and let Lazarus die so that I can then go to raise him from the dead. And when he shows up in Bethany, he says, hey, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But first, I need to know where he's buried. And I don't know. He's going to raise Lazarus because he's God. And he asks, where is the tomb? Because he doesn't know because he's human. 
There seems to be only two possibilities. Either Jesus is pretending to not know where the tomb is. You know, where is Lazarus buried? I really know, but I'm going to pretend like I don't know because I want you to think that I'm human. Or he actually doesn't know. He just doesn't know where the tomb is. And some people struggle with that because they think, well, if Jesus is God, then he knows everything. That's true. So how can he be limited in his knowledge? But I love the way that early church father Tertullian sums up the consequences of not believing the genuine humanity of Jesus. He says, if Jesus' being flesh is discovered to be alive, him being human is discovered to be alive, then it follows that all things which were done by the flesh of Christ were done untruly because he suffered nothing who did not truly suffer. He wasn't genuinely human. The unfortunate, unintentional, and undesired effect of not believing the genuine humanity of Jesus is best summed up by theologian Mark Jones, who says, Jesus' life has a glory in it that is only appreciated to the degree that his humanity is embraced and understood. Don't ever undersell the full deity of Jesus, but don't ever undersell the full humanity of Jesus. Of the way that Martin Luther says it, the right way to come to a proper understanding of Jesus Christ is to begin with his humanity. He is truly human. So can I ask you, what's your concept of Jesus? When you think of Jesus, what do you think of when you think of him walking around in the streets of Jerusalem? Do you go to one side or the other of these tensions? Some people say, I've heard Preachers say this. I've heard pastors say this. Quote, it would have been hard to argue with Jesus because, of course, he always knew what you were going to say before you said it. My question is, did he? My question is, does the Bible suggest that? The question is not, was Jesus in possession of omniscience? He is because he's genuinely God, fully God. But the question is, was Jesus in his humanity always perpetually exercising the omniscience that he possessed? That's the question. Leon Morris demonstrates uh, the way that this type of thinking functionally works itself out. He says, sometimes one meets people who overlook this aspect of Jesus's life, that there are things he didn't know. They picture him as going on a serene way, knowing the thoughts of everyone about him, knowing the outcome of every course of action in which he or they were engaging. And if this was the manner of it, then the life Jesus lived was not a human life, even human life at its highest level. There are limitations to Jesus's knowledge. There are limitations to Jesus's presence on earth. He couldn't be everywhere at once. That's why he tells his disciples in the upper room, John 14, he says, it's good that I would leave because I can't be with you all at the exact same time. But if I go, I can send my spirit who can be with you all at the exact same time. Clearly, Jesus lived a life that is stunningly like ours. He had no more spiritual resources than you and I have. He's confined to one zip code in Israel. His experiences are human. He experiences human emotion, human pain, human exhaustion, human temptation, and even death. He wasn't pretending to be human. He is actually human. Often I think that we believe and kind of buy into this functional Clark Kent syndrome of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is really just Superman. He's Superman, but he pretends to be Clark Kent. You guys know Superman, pretends to be Clark Kent, put the glasses on, uh, uh, Superman's gone, now I'm this guy who works at a newspaper. Take the glasses off, pull the shirt off, and I'm Superman. Clark Kent was not real. He's always Superman, but he pretends to be human so that you can think that he's not Superman. I think often we believe that. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we think, well, he just pretended to be human. And I would say, I think from the Bible very clearly, he took on genuine, unfallen humanity. There's a story in an apocryphal gospel. So this is a gospel that's not God's word. It's outside of God's word. It says that when Jesus was born, as Mary is swaddling him, he looks up at her and says, please handle me carefully for I am the son of God. Did Jesus do that? 
No. And yet, we can easily buy into that. We can even think that functionally as we sing. We sing Christmas carols. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. What baby is that? That's born and never cries. It's not a real baby. Oh, one day the wind and the waves would obey him. But for this moment in this staple, his diaper needs to be changed. He's a baby. He's a baby. J.I. Packer says, there is nothing in fiction that is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. This is a mystery beyond all mysteries. This is a wonder beyond all wonders. This would be like William Shakespeare writing a play, writing a story, and not just writing himself in as one of the characters. William Shakespeare does this, and William Shakespeare does this. No, it would be like William Shakespeare putting the pen down and somehow jumping into the story and living in the story that he wrote. It's just wonderful. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to meditate three different facets. I want to meditate on three different facets of the incarnation. I want to look at the incarnation historically, biblically, and pastorally. I want to look at it historically. How has this been understood through the millennia of church history? How have we understood this concept of 100% God, 100% man at the exact same time so that we don't wander into error? We don't go one way too far here, one way too far here, but we keep them in beautiful tension. I'm going to look at it biblically. Where do we get these ideas from the scriptures? Then I want to look at it pastorally. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2 is where we are going to be. You can turn there with me. But I want to start with historically. I want to start just briefly with a jet tour through church history. How has the church understood this mystery throughout the ages? going all the way back to the first century when the apostles are writing the Bible. A heresy rose up called Gnosticism. Actually, that apocryphal account that I read from that fake gospel about Jesus saying, please handle me carefully, that was a Gnostic gospel. Gnosticism hates humanity. Gnosticism says humanity and material things are bad, Only spiritual things are good. So therefore, Jesus could not be actual humanity because that would mean he's bad. This is actually what John is writing to argue against in 1 John. We got this a lot. We have seen him with our eyes. We have touched him. We have heard him speak. He is genuinely human. That's what John's arguing against Gnosticism. Docetism also arose in the first century. comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to appear to seem. So Jesus isn't actually human. He just appeared to be human. He looked like it, but he wasn't really human. Ebionism in the second century said that Jesus wasn't fully God. He's actually human, but he's not fully God. You're going to either side of the cliff. You're falling off instead of staying on that road very carefully in that tension. One of the most famous of all of the isms in early church when it comes to the deity and humanity of Christ, is Arianism. Arianism, 3rd and 4th century, a guy named Arius said that Jesus is not fully God and not fully human. He's something in the middle. He's between God and human. He was created. This is what Arius taught. He was created, and then he created everything else. So he's not God because God created him, but he's not human because he created humans. So he's something in the middle. His Famous phrase was, there was a time when he was not. That's Arius' favorite phrase. There was a time when Jesus didn't exist, meaning he's not 100% God. By the way, Arianism, the false doctrine of Arianism, still lives on today in Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. They believe that Jesus is a created being that contradicts what Scripture clearly teaches. On the other hand, uh, there was a man by the name of Apollinaris who... Uh, uh, an ism is named after him, Apollinarianism. And Apollinaris, who is a bishop of Laodicea in the 300s, claimed that Jesus was fully God, arguing against Arianism. He says, no, Jesus never had a beginning. He's fully God. But because he so wanted to preserve and protect the deity of Christ, whenever he heard things like there was a limitation to Jesus' knowledge or Jesus is 100% human and it was limited in certain human capacities, he didn't like that because he didn't want to sacrifice deity. And so he said, 
Jesus had a human body, but he didn't have a human soul. That's the way he got around it. But functionally, he said Jesus is 100% God, but not fully human. I think we can so easily fall into neo-Apollinarianism. I don't think that we're going to fall into Arianism because we hold a high view of Jesus' deity. We will not sacrifice that. But I think so often because we hold that view, we miss the tension of Jesus being actually, truly, really human. And that would be a functional Apollinarianism. Just two more. Eutychianism held that Jesus' humanity and deity mixed together and formed a third thing. So Eutychianism says... He's not fully God, fully man. He just kind of formed in this third thing that no one really understands. And then Nestorianism said the opposite. No, those two natures, God and man, are so divided, never being mixed together, that Jesus was actually two people. Nestorianism says he's two people. So what, what, which is it? All these isms, and there's so many more isms down through church history. So in 325, Constantine, emperor of Rome, said, we need to figure this out. We need to figure this out. So he got 300 pastors, brought them together, uh, Council of Nicaea, and said, let's figure out what the Bible teaches about the deity of Jesus within the Trinity. The, the main emphasis of the Council of, Nicaea was, uh, Council of Nicaea was the Trinity. Let's talk about the Trinity. How does this work? And so at the Council of Nicaea, they had to talk about Jesus' deity. Arius was there. He was talking about how Jesus was created, not fully God, not a part of the Trinity. God, the Father alone is God. Everything else, the Spirit's not God. Jesus is not God. God, the Father alone is God. There's an amazing story about the Council of Nicaea. St. Nicholas, where we get you know, St. Nick from, Santa Claus from. Nicholas was there. He's a pastor. And he was listening to Arius talk about Jesus being created. And he got so mad that... Arius was talking about such blasphemous things about Jesus not being fully God that he got up, walked across the room, and slapped Arius in the face. There's your holly jolly Saint Nick, right? Slapping people in the face. The council finalized the Nicene Creed, one of the most important Christian documents ever written defending the deity of Jesus. That's what the Council of Nicaea did in 325, but they didn't really talk about the humanity of Jesus because that wasn't really on the table. And so you have all these isms that went to he's fully God, but he's not really human. And so in the 400s, in the 5th century, uh, one pastor, Pastor Leo, said, it is as dangerous an evil to deny the truth of the human nature of Christ as to refuse to believe that his glory is equal to that of the Father. He says it's as equally dangerous to deny his humanity as it is to deny his deity. And so another council is formed. Let's get together and talk about his humanity. How does this work with his deity? We know he's 100% God, but how does his humanity work? This council was formed in Chalcedon, Council of Chalcedon, 451 AD. About 400, uh, 500, 600 pastors get together to dialogue about this. This is where the understanding of his humanity comes out so clearly. Two natures in one person. There's a distinction of the two natures. They are not brought together like Eutychianism. They're without confusion. They're without change. They're without division. They're without separation. The distinction of the natures by no means taken away, taken away by the union of the two. The distinction of the natures. This is language from the creed of Chalcedon. The, dis the distinction of those two natures by no means taken away by the union. Two persons, there are two natures in one person. That's who Jesus is. A divine nature, a human nature in one person. Not two natures in two people. Not one nature in one person. Two natures, one person. People have written about this through the millennia. What I want to do is I, I just kind of want to give you a brief example of the way that people talked about this humanity and deity being brought together, this mystery. Um, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. I'm going to read a bunch of quotes. I'm going to put them on the screen so you can see them too. And maybe you can even jot some ideas down, but listen to the way that they walked through this mystery down through the millennium. Augustine said it this way, man's maker was made man. 
that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread of life might hunger. The fountain of living water might thirst. The light of the world might close his eyes in sleep. The only way to the father would be tired on his journeys. That the truth might be accused of false witness. That the teacher would be beaten with whips. That the foundation be suspended on wood. And that strength might grow weak. And that the helper might be wounded. And that life itself might die. John Murray says the infinite became finite. The eternal and supratemporal entered time and became subject to its conditions. The immutable became mutable. The invisible became visible. The creator became the creation. The sustainer of all became dependent. The almighty infirm. All is summed up in the, preposition, in the proposition, God became man. I love how B.B. Warfield says it. The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze, not a humanized God or a deified man. That is so good. Not a humanized God or a deified man. That's the way that the Romans thought about God or the, the Greeks thought about God. No, this is a true God man. One who is all that God is. And at the same time, all that man is. That's the best way to describe it. All that God is, and at the same time, all that man is. On whose mighty arm we can rest, and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. We cannot afford to lose either the God in the man, or the man in the God. Our hearts cry out for the complete God-man whom the scriptures offer to us. Stephen Charnock says, what a wonder it is. That two natures, infinitely distant, should be more intimately united than anything in the world and yet without any confusion. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. These are such expressions of mighty power as well as condescending love that they astonished men upon earth and angels in heaven. Thomas Watson, old Puritan writer, said that, that Christ should clothe himself with our flesh. Oh, infinite humility. Christ's taking our flesh was one of the lowest steps of his humiliation. He humbled himself. I love this. He humbled himself more in lying in the virgin's womb than in hanging on the cross. It was not so much for man to die. That happens all the time. But for God to become man is the wonder of humility. C.S. Lewis, in just the way that he could put it so succinctly, so beautifully, in our world, a stable once had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. Just three more. John Calvin says, here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb. That's so key. Without leaving heaven... He willed to be born, 100% God, 100% man, to go about on the earth, to hang on the cross, yet he continuously filled the world, even as he had done from the beginning. Jonathan Edwards says, Christ's incarnation was a greater and more wonderful thing that had ever yet come to pass. The creation of the world was a very great thing, but not so great as the incarnation of Christ. It was a great thing for God to make the creature but not so great as for the creator himself to become a creature. God becoming man was greater than all previous events in history. And lastly, back to Augustine. He says, he through who time was made was made in time. And he, older by eternity than the world itself, was younger in age than many of his servants in the world. He who made man was made man. He was given existence by a mother whom he brought into existence. He was carried in hands which he formed. He nursed at breasts which he filled. He cried like a babe in the manger in speechless infancy. This same word without which human eloquence is speechless. Come behold the wondrous mystery. 
What marvelous mystery that God became man without losing deity, but while taking full humanity upon himself. That's historically. That's just a brief look at church history about what the church looked at when they saw the scriptures teaching Jesus 100% God, 100% man, and how they talked about it. Now let's look biblically. Where did they get these ideas from? Well, I've already covered uh, a number of passages that talk about the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, talked about those things, but how are we to understand them working together? Philippians chapter 2, I think, is probably the best place to go to. Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. There's been some arguments in this church, and so Paul is trying to say, hey, stop arguing, stop fighting. So he's going to say, don't look to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. Don't keep focusing on yourself, focus on others. Serve others. Humbly consider others as more important than yourself. And to press that point home and to give us the motivation of how to live that out, he then says, follow the example of Christ. Verse 5, have this attitude, Philippians 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what is the attitude that Jesus had that we're supposed to have? Who, although he existed in the form of God, my Bible says existed, it's past tense, Bad translation of that, because it's not existed, it's a present participle, though existing in the form of God. He never ceased to exist in the form of God. So he's existing in the form of God. Form is the Greek word morphe, it's everything that it means to be that thing is what you are. So if you are in the morphe of something, you are that thing. Everything that that thing has, you have because you are in the morphe of it. In our minds, we can think of form, meaning like it looks like he's God, but no, Greek, it means he's, he is God. Everything that it means to be God, he has. And if that wasn't clear enough, he then says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality, that Greek word is isos, where you get isosceles triangle from. Well, one side of the triangle is equal to the other side of the triangle. They are equal in every way, shape, and form. So Paul says very clearly he's existing in the form of God. He is God. He's equal with God, but he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto for his own possession and position. But, verse 7, he emptied himself. So he's God, very God, but he empties himself. That word for emptied is the Greek word kanao, where we get kenosis from, to empty yourself. And this is where we have an issue, because a lot of people hear empty, they Think of the idea of a, you know, a cup being full and it's being poured out. And so what did he empty himself of? He's God, very God, but he emptied himself of deity. That's error. That's false doctrine. That's not what Paul is saying. And even if you just keep reading, you know that's not what Paul is saying because he doesn't say he'd emptied himself by giving things up. No, he says he emptied himself by taking by adding, taking the form of a bondservant, taking the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. So he never ceased to be God. He couldn't cease to be God. Number one, Paul says, he exists forever. It's present participle. He is existing in the form of God. Number two, he's equal with God. But number three, he doesn't empty himself of deity because he empties himself by taking. So he never ceases to be 100% God. So how does he empty himself? How does he humble himself in this way? He does so through addition. He doesn't give anything up. He adds something. And what does he add? He adds the form of a slave. He adds the form of a human being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus doesn't exchange the form of God for the form of man. That's a false doctrine that Jesus in the incarnation gave up deity to become humanity. That's not true. It's not what Paul is saying here. He takes on himself the form of a man while always maintaining the form of God. That's what Paul is saying. John Murray's helpful here. He says, it is sometimes thought that when the Son of God became man and humbled himself, he thereby ceased to be what he was. 
and in some way divested himself of the attributes and prerogatives of deity, that he changed the form of God for the form of man. He became poor, it is said, by emptying himself of divine properties, became poor by subtraction. The scripture does not support any such notion. Even in his incarnate state, in him dwelt the fullness of God, Colossians 2.9. When the Son of Man became poor, it was not by giving up his godhood, nor any of the attributes and prerogatives inseparable from godhood. When he became man, he did not cease to be rich in his divine being, relations and possessions. He did not become poor by ceasing to be what he was. He became poor by becoming what he was not. He became poor by addition, not not subtraction. The immutable God becomes what he wasn't while never ceasing to be what he always was. Go to Romans chapter 8. Paul says something just staggering in Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 3. Paul says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, the law can't save us. We can't get to heaven by our good works. We can't save ourselves by any good works. So God does the work. He saves us by his grace, by his love. He does the work for us. God did, sending his own son. And then he says this, in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus never sinned, nor did he have a sin nature. But he was made. Paul, Paul's trying to get as close as he can to this mystery without going over into false doctrine. In the likeness of sinful flesh. It looked like that. He wasn't sinful, but he lived our lives out before us. He took all the limitations of genuine humanity, unfallen humanity, but genuine humanity. Gerald Bray says, there is no evidence to suggest that Jesus was specially gifted intellectually or had any remarkable talents, still less that he knew the deep secrets of the universe. Although he was a divine person, he was functioning within the parameters of his human nature and did not exceed them without compromising, could not exceed them without compromising the integrity of his humanity. This is why the temptations are what they are in the Gospels. Jesus is told by the devil, worship me. That's morally wrong. Don't do that. Don't ever do that. Jesus is told, uh, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Put God to the test. That's morally wrong. Don't ever do that. But then Jesus is also told by the devil, turn stones into bread. That's not morally wrong. It's not morally wrong to turn a rock into a piece of bread. Why is that a temptation? It's a temptation as we studied in the Gospel of Mark because what the devil is asking Jesus to do is step outside of the limitations of humanity. You and I, when we're hungry, we can't turn rocks into bread. Jesus, if he just says, I'm hungry, I'm going to turn rocks into bread on his own strength, on his own ability, without asking the Father for permission, for the ability, through the Spirit to do that miracle, he would cease to be 100% man. Stephen Wellham says, from the moment of his conception... The son humbled himself. In so doing, he did not override the limitations of his human nature. The son in his human nature lived like we do and accepted the limitations of that nature as our representative, as our covenant head, and as our mediator. He didn't override. I love that word, override. Jesus was not limited as he's God, very God. But he took on humanity, willingly, humbly limiting himself and accepted those limitations. I used to ask my students all the time at Heritage, was Jesus uh, omnipotent when he was on the earth? Was he omnipresent? Was he omniscient while he was on the earth? Did he know everything? They'd say yes. And I'd say, okay, well, what about when he doesn't know where Lazarus is buried? They'd say no. And I'd say, okay, well, what about him being God? They'd get all confused. I don't understand this. I'd go, yes, that's exactly where you should be. (laughs) I would say, according to his deity, According to his divine nature, he's always omniscient. He has to be. If Jesus ever ceases to be omniscient, he ceases to be God. But according to his humanity, he absolutely is not omniscient. He doesn't know where things are happening, where they should be. He doesn't know those things. He grows in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. 100% God, 100% man. 
First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's a human, fully human. Donald McLeod says, as our mediator, Jesus had to fulfill his office of mediator within the limitations of a human body. So he has to fulfill it with the limitations of a human mind. Jesus had to learn to obey without knowing all the facts and to believe without being in possession of full information. He had to forego the comfort which omniscience would sometimes have brought. He suffered as the one who does not have all the answers and who in his extremity has to ask why. On the cross, why have you forsaken me? The ignorance is not a mere appearance. It is reality. But it is a reality freely chosen. Just as on the cross, he chose not to summon 12 legions of angels. Omniscience was a luxury always within reach but incompatible with his rules of engagement. He had to serve within the limitations of his finiteness. What a staggering mystery. What a wondrous mystery. We looked at it historically. We've looked at it biblically, briefly. I want to look at it pastorally. So what? Is this just supposed to be an argument from the Bible where we get our minds just kind of tied up in knots of how do we understand this? No, there's supposed to be such Worship, awe, wonder, reverence, and then practical application of these realities. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Let's look at this pastorally. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Starting in verse 14. I would say three things. Three realities of what happens because of the incarnation. Three consequences of the incarnation. I would say three main pastoral applications of the incarnation. Number one, because of the incarnation, we have a friend who understands us. Because of the incarnation, we have a friend who understands us. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, Let us hold fast our confession because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He sympathizes with us. He knows what it is to struggle with temptation. So the author of Hebrews says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of his humanity, because he was tempted in all ways that we are, yet without sin, that should drive us to a friend. We have a friend who understands us. He doesn't understand temptation theoretically. Jesus understands temptation experientially. He felt all of your infirmities. And he never used his divine nature to keep himself from experiencing your life, every aspect of your life. He didn't play the God trump card. His deity, which he never gave up, was never used to his advantage, never an ace up his sleeve. He sympathizes with you. He doesn't stand afar and say, I don't get you. I don't understand you. Why did you do that again? He doesn't do that. He knows our weakness. I love this. I love For you kids that are still here, the the beauty of this reality as a kid in a household with sinful parents that just drive you nuts. Kids, Jesus knew that feeling. He knew the feeling when a brother or sister did something and then he was the one who would be disciplined. Go away. No, no. Get out of here. No. Over here. No. Separate. No. And he's going, no, this isn't fair. He knew what that would feel like. He knew what it would feel like to struggle, to submit, to obey, to have a good attitude, to honor. Jesus knows what it feels like to struggle with obeying your parents. So run to him when you do. (laughs) Maybe that applies with older kids too, myself included, right? Maybe that implies to the adults. If you ever find it difficult to honor the people around you, to honor your family members, to honor those that are in your life that maybe you struggle to honor. Jesus knew that feeling, and yet he honored anyway. He always obeyed. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. 
Go back to Hebrews 2, just a couple chapters earlier. Verse 18. He himself was tempted in that which he suffered. And because of that, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He can help you. He's a friend to those that are in need. He's a friend and understands. I love how Dane Orland says it. It's not that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles, though he can, like a doctor prescribing medicine. It's also that before any relief comes, he is with us in our troubles, like a doctor who has endured the same disease. We have a friend who understands us. Number two, pastorally, we have a savior who rescues us. We have a savior who rescues us. And this is the beauty of the incarnation because we don't just have a friend who goes, I get that. I understand your struggles, but I can't help you in any way. No, Jesus says, I get that. I understand your struggles and I can help you. I will rescue you. I did the work to save you. Hebrews chapter two, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, we share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So Jesus had to become a human to die because God can't die. So he had to be human to die, took on humanity to die. And then he could free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to the angels. He didn't become an angel and die for angels. No, he became a human and died for humans. Therefore, he had to, verse 17, he had to be make made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He shares on our flesh and blood. He rescues us. Finally, number three, he gives us an example to encourage us. Pastorally, the incarnation tells us we have, number one, a friend who understands us, number two, a savior who rescues us, and number three, an example to encourage us. He gives us an example of humility. This is why Paul wrote what he wrote in Philippians chapter two. Consider Jesus. Have the attitude of Jesus. He also wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine, though he was rich, he became poor so that you who are poor could become rich. But he also gives us a great example to encourage us of how to rely on the Holy Spirit. He had to rely on the Spirit. You know someone who perfectly relied on the Spirit, always doing the will of the Father as given through the Spirit to fight every temptation and to perfectly obey. Go to Hebrews chapter 5 and we'll end here in verse 8. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8. Although Jesus was a son, although he's equal to God, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned how to obey. He never struggled with disobeying, but he learned how to obey. You know someone who perfectly depended on the Spirit, who perfectly was led by the Spirit. That's why he's praying constantly. That's why he's seeking the will of God constantly. So follow his example. Friends, I would just encourage you, there is nothing that you are going through, nothing that you are going through, have gone through, will go through, that Jesus doesn't understand. Not theoretically, experientially, because he's gone through it himself. Do you struggle with anger? If anyone in the world has a right to be angry at what he saw going around in the world around him, going on in the world around him, it's Jesus. And yet somehow, through the power of the Spirit and through saying yes to the will of the Father, he was never sinfully angry. Do you struggle with financial instability? You're like, yeah, Jesus doesn't get that one. No, he does. He had no place to lay his head. He always had to trust that the Father would provide. You struggle with injustice that has caused you pain. Jesus came to this world knowing perfect justice in heaven and saw the corruption of sin and injustice on earth. He knows. Do you struggle with despair or depression? Jesus knows that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I could, I could die here of sorrow and sadness. My heart is grieved to the very point of death. Have you ever been betrayed by someone and it hurts and you struggle with bitterness? Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest companions. Have you been hurt by your spouse? Betrayed by your spouse? Jesus has been. His bride, the church, has betrayed him, has hurt him. 
You struggle with a critical spirit, with giving other people the benefit of the doubt. Jesus knew what manipulation was like. You can read it in the scriptures. He knew when people were trying to use him and he was never critical of them. He loved them. He would say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. When you feel like I have rights and I must use them and I must hold on to them, think of all the rights Jesus gave up. Friends, he knows exactly the life that you live because he lived it perfectly before you. He knows it. So Dane Orland says, when we sin, we're encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because we know exactly how he will receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl or scold. He doesn't lash out like many of our parents did. And all of this restraint on his part is not because he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we ever could. Indeed, we're just aware of the tip of the iceberg of our depravity. Even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge, his restraint flows from his tender heart for his people. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Thomas Goodwin says, that which keeps men off from coming to Jesus is that they know not Christ's mind and they know not his heart. The truth is, he is more glad of us than we can ever be of him. The father of the prodigal was the forwarder of the two. He's the one who met. He ran to his son. Have you a mind? He that came down from heaven, as he himself says in the text, to die for you will meet you more than halfway, as the prodigal's father is said to do. Oh, therefore come to him. And then he writes, if you knew his heart, you would. So Dane Ortland sums it all up by saying, whatever is crumbling around, all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. Christ's heart for you, the real you, is gentle and lowly. So go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he's there. He lives right there. His heart's for you. Not on the other side of it, but in that darkness. And his heart is gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. And he quotes Thomas Goodwin and says, if you knew his heart, you would. I love the way the hymn writer says, see amid the winter's snow, low within a manger lies, he who built the starry skies, sacred infant, all divine, what a tender love was thine, thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. He did it because he loves you. He did it to save you, to rescue you, and to bring you safely home. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for a meditation on the glory of you coming to earth, being 100% God, 100% man. There is a mystery there, and we, we marvel at it. We worship you for it. But what your word clearly teaches, we bow the knee to, and we hold and we're so thankful. So Father, I pray that even now as we just sit here, we meditate on this song. I pray that as this song is played, as we look at the lyrics, as we meditate on the words of how low our Redeemer was brought, that it would lead us to worship. And that we would end our time together singing praise to you, our great high priest. We pray it in your name. Amen.